Continue with your posture heavenward and let's pray together to our great God. Oh, great God, you indeed do deserve the highest praise. You deserve the loudest shouts of exclamation and joy and wonder and amazement and awe. You are worthy, oh, great God. Father, we thank You for how You have pursued us, how You have adopted us, how You have redeemed us. Jesus, we thank You that You died in our place to bear the wrath that we deserve. Holy Spirit, we thank You for awakening our hearts to these glorious realities. Thank You that when we were dead in our sins, and trespasses, you made us alive together in Christ. When we had no taste for your joys, when we had no desire for your goodness and your kindness, you changed our lives, and we thank you for that. We thank you that we can sing of this joy and this peace and this hope no matter what around us is going on. No matter what ailments or sicknesses or diseases or pains or sufferings or persecutions, no matter where in this world we find ourselves, we thank you that we can sing of this joy, of this hope, of this peace, of this eternity that we know we will have with you. You are indeed worthy. You're worthy of the highest praise. So would you teach us today, Lord? Would you teach us these things deep in our souls? Help us to not just sing of these things on Sunday and forget about you and rebel against you on Monday, but Lord, help us to know these things so deeply that they transform the way we think, the way we act, the way we talk, the way we relate to others. Lord, Lord change us by the power of your word. Help us to see your glory, show us that you reign over all. Give us the grace to accept your word. We pray for that help right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So good to see you today. So good to be here with you. Well, after a short summer break, we are now, right now, going to jump back into our study of the book of Revelation. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. Or if you realize we're about to jump into the seven plagues, you might say, Oh no. Um, before we read Revelation 15 and 16, let me give you a brief summary of sort of where we've been, what we've already seen in the book of Revelation. We actually started studying Revelation on the first Sunday in January, and so let me just sort of give you a quick running start so that we can jump into Revelation 15 and 16 with a little bit of, with a little bit of that running start. So the book of Revelation begins with a few clarifying comments, clarifying truths 
that are the key to understanding this entire book. Revelation chapter 1 verse 1 says that this is the revelation of Jesus from Jesus. This is the book of the revelation of Jesus from Jesus. Jesus is the content and the giver of the visions of the last book of our Bible. That is the most important thing to understand about this book. Jesus is the content of these visions and He is the giver of these visions. That's why the book is called Revelation, not Revelations. It doesn't have an S on it because this contains the final and definitive and singular revelation of King Jesus. The entire book and all of the various visions of this book make up the ultimate revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation is about Jesus. That's what we've tried to make crystal clear every week. And this is the key to interpreting this book correctly and specifically Revelation is about the undeniable victory of Jesus. The burden of this entire book is summarized, I think, by the two words that we're calling this series, Jesus wins. It summarize the entire book. That's what it's about. That's what is made known. That's what is unveiled. That's what is revealed. Jesus wins. And so as we mentioned at the beginning of this study, Revelation is not some kind of escape room where you have to find the special decoder ring to make sense of its mysteries. No, it's an unveiling. It's an unveiling of the victory of Jesus over everything, over all evil forces. God's purpose in this book is not to confuse or obscure. Just the opposite. God's purpose is to reveal, to make known. And I think this should be massively encouraging to us as we study this book. God intends to make the message clear to His servants. In fact, that's why the book begins with chapter 1, verse 3, that great blessing to all who read and hear and keep the words of this book. Another big truth we saw in chapter 1 is that the book of Revelation was written to actual, specific, local churches. Revelation is designed to encourage believers to persevere no matter what persecution, no matter what suffering we face. And so we saw all of chapters 2 and 3 are letters to individual local churches about the specific situations of those churches. Well, we also saw in chapters five, 4 and 5 that those chapters are kind of the controlling center of this book, if you will. We see in chapters 4 and 5 this vision of the glorious throne room of God. Everything in the book of Revelation originates from the throne. God is in control and He deserves the worship of every created thing. The Lamb is worthy, as we sang, because the Lamb was slain and resurrected. Chapter 6 contains the first cycle of judgments from the throne, the seven seal judgments. Chapter 7 contains an interlude that shows us God protects and provides for His saints, for His sealed people. Chapters 8 and 9 give us another cycle of judgment, the terror of the trumpet judgments. Chapters 10 and 11 are another interlude showing us the mission and purpose of the people of God. We are to be a witnessing and worshiping people in this 
here and now, in this already, not yet, while we await the second coming of King Jesus. Chapters 12 through 14 introduce us to an unholy trinity that seeks to mock and mimic the one true God. There is a battle raging, there is a war that is being fought, and this dragon, who is Satan, has been defeated by the Messiah. But he still fights against the people of God and pursues the people of God. And so we see that he summons his helpers, the sea beast and the land beast, and these beasts lead people astray. These beasts demand that their followers receive the mark of the beast. But praise God, he marks out his own and he protects his people from his righteous and eternal wrath. And it's the theme of God's wrath and justice that continues now into the bold judgments in chapters 15 and 16. So follow along as I read all of chapters 15 and 16 over us. What a joy it is to read God's Word out loud together with you this morning. John says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are Your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are Your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify Your name? For You alone are holy. All nations will come and worship You, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. And harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea. And it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing that died, every living thing died that was in the sea. 
The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give Him glory. The fifth angel poured out His bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out His bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of His wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so Severe. The plague was so terrible. Now, the battle and temptation, I think, in our hearts right now as we read this is to dismiss or dilute the truth of this passage that the God of the Bible is a God of righteous wrath. The God that we worship, the God that we love, is a God of righteous wrath. 
The wrath of God is mocked and ridiculed and marginalized today, but friends, it is real. And this passage calls us to live in light of the wrath of God that is being poured out and will be poured out in full on God's enemies. Far from the modern way of sort of pushing the wrath of God out of our minds and and out of our songs and, and out of our thoughts, the Bible actually calls us to live in light of, to understand God's wrath in such a way that it causes us to live in a certain way. And that's what passages like this call us to do. If I had to state a main point for these two chapters, Revelation 15 and 16, it would be this. God's wrathful judgment is just and right and true. God's wrathful judgment is just and it is right and it is true. And so what I want to do is walk through this passage and just make some observations about what is here and then conclude by making some, by highlighting some truths about God's righteous wrath. So notice with me as we just walk through this. In chapter 15, verse 1, John sees another great and amazing sign in heaven. So God is allowing John to see these visions that point to His plan and purpose for the entire church age. This age that we live in between Jesus' first and second comings. So John is allowed to see this, but remember John is also commissioned to write this down so that we can see this. So that we can sort of picture and imagine Imagine these visions. John sees seven angels with seven plagues. Now we're going to learn later that these seven plagues will be in seven golden bowls that will then be poured out on sinful humanity. These seven bowl judgments are not partial or limited like the seals and the trumpets that we saw earlier. Right? The seal judgments affected a fourth of the earth. The trumpet judgments affected a third of creation. But these bold judgments are universal and they are complete. Notice in verses 2-4, through four, John sees the victorious people of God standing around God's throne. This sea of glass mingled with fire points us back to chapter 4, that controlling center of this book, and God's throne. And so the point is that we are to see these judgments as coming from the throne. These judgments aren't out of control. They're not haphazard. They're not random. They originate from the God who is on the throne, who is in control. Now, I think this is a reference here to all the redeemed people of God around the throne. Those who conquered, those who were singing this song. I think this is a reference to all of those redeemed by God. They are here around this throne, singing this song, playing these harps, celebrating this victory. They are here, not because of how awesome they are, not because of how special their faith was. They are here, not because of what they have done. They are here because of what Jesus has done. Because Jesus conquered on their behalf, His people conquer. And that's why they sing the song of Moses. And they sing, notice, the song of the Lamb. Now, harps symbolize victory, and so they have, they have God's harps in their hand. Notice they're God's harps. 
that are in their hands as they sing. They sing this celebration, this victory song here, just as Moses and the people of Israel sang after the Red Sea. Friends, God's people are a singing people. Have you, have you realized that yet? You could, you could do a study of the book of Revelation on just the songs in the book of Revelation. And it would be an awesome study. At every time in the high points in God's people's history, the, the response is singing. God has given us the gift of singing to, to respond in victory and in joy to what He has done. Just as Moses and the people of God sang about the deliverance from Egypt, so we will sing about the greatness and justice of God for all eternity. When God saves, we sing. When God delivers, we sing. When God is victorious, we sing. Notice what they sing. Verses 3 and 4 of chapter 15. Notice what they sing. They sing, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. They sing, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, O Ruler of all, O One who reigns over all. Just and true are your ways. Notice they sing, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name. They sing, for you alone are holy. They sing, all nations will come and worship you because your righteous acts have been revealed. They sing about the greatness and the majesty and the glory and the beauty and the value of our God. They have seen His glory. And all they can do is sing and celebrate and worship. Well, beginning in verse 5, John sees more about these seven angels. He sees them coming out of the sanctuary in heaven. And as they come out of the sanctuary of heaven, they are dressed like priests with these golden sashes. And they have, they have a special mission from God they are going to pour out these seven golden bowls of God's wrath. In verse 8, John sees that the sanctuary is filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. Those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament should, should, should be very familiar with this. Nearly every time that God's power shows up in His temple, the result is smoke. The result is fire. And no one and no one can enter the sanctuary until these seven plagues are finished. So these angels are ready to carry out God's judgment on sinful humanity. They are ready to pour out these bowls that they have been given from the throne of God. And so look at verse 1 of chapter 16. John hears what's most likely the voice of God Himself commanding these special forces angels to go and pour these bowls on the earth. Now, as we move through these seven bowls, and just we can't hit everything here, but as we just hit some of the highlights of these seven bowls, pay particular attention to how these judgments echo some of the judgments on the, of the ten plagues on Egypt in the book of Exodus. We saw this like we, we, did, we saw this in the trumpet judgment. So many echoes back to the book of Exodus. And listen, just to restate, 
The way I interpret these judgments, I know people interpret these in different ways, but the way that I see these, just like the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments when we were there, if you, if you want to know more about how we interpret these, go back to those sermons. You can listen to that audio on our website. But the way basically that we interpret these is that this isn't predicting something that will literally happen one day. Rather, the way that we see this is that this is apocalyptic language that uses imagery and metaphors to point to something greater, to some greater reality than just the physical. And so I don't think the goal of Revelation chapter 16 is to be looking at the news or reading the newspaper and saying, oh, that, that might be the fourth bowl, right? Now, I don't think that's the point. I think the point is that these cataclysmic realities point to something deeper, point to something bigger than just themselves. Mainly, these judgments show just how awful our sin and rebellion against God really is. These cataclysmic pictures point us to the, the epic failure of sin and the ugliness and horror of turning away from God. These images give us pictures so that we can imagine just how ugly our rebellion against a holy God really is. And so in verse 2, the first angel pours out his bowl and painful sores come upon people who worshipped the beast. This echoes the sixth plague on Egypt where painful boils came upon God's enemies. And notice carefully that the people of God are spared from this judgment in verse 2. Who do these painful sores come upon? They only come upon those who worship the beast, who have the mark of the beast. Why is that? Because God protects His people. Because God protects His people. In verse 3, the second angel pours out his bowl into the sea. The sea became blood, and every living thing in the sea died. This obviously echoes the first plague on Egypt when God made the Nile River turn to blood. If this judgment would actually happen, this would lead to rampant death and economic ruin that we couldn't even imagine. The third bowl is poured out in verse 4. The rivers and springs of water become blood, and so... The picture is that all water sources are filled with death. Now this third bowl is interesting because we actually get more information about the purpose of this judgment in the, the song or the poem that this angel sings in verses 5 and 6. Uh, we're going to come back to this in a moment, but just notice here that this angel declares God's judgment to be totally just. This angel declares God's judgment to be totally just. Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. Why, verse 6? For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. And then notice that last line of verse 6. It is what they deserve. This is... This is a holy, majestic angel responding to God's judgment, saying, this judgment is totally just. Why? Because it's what they deserve. Now, of course, we know 
This is what sinners deserve. But here this is declared to be the reason for God's judgment. God is not unjust. God does not give His wrath to people who haven't earned it. The reason they get blood to drink is because they have shed the blood of God's people. Now listen, we may accuse God of being unfair or unjust. That happens every day by sinners. But heaven understands that all of God's judgments are just and they are true. We may, from our limited perspective, say, God, that's not fair. God, that's unjust of you. But from heaven's perspective, His judgments are always just and true and right. These bowls of wrath are totally fitting the guilt of the people on earth. In fact, notice what the altar says in verse 7. And I have no idea how an altar says this, but that's what it says. An altar says in verse 7, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Well, the fourth angel and the fourth bowl are in verses 8 and 9. The sun scorches people with fierce heat. This is obviously more than just a sunburn. This is fire from the sun scorching people's skin. And that's not the most devastating result of this bowl. Notice the people's response in verse 9. And they curse the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give Him glory. Like Pharaoh, they harden their hearts and they refuse to repent even though the power of God is so clearly evident to them. Right? So this is the goal of these plagues. Let's not forget this. We saw this earlier in the seals and in the trumpets. The goal of these plagues is repentance. That's what God is doing. The reason He's pouring out these judgments is so that people would turn from their sins and give Him the glory that He deserves. But the people see and experience His wrath and His power, and all they can do is turn away from Him and curse Him. This is tragic. This is the tragedy of our, of our own sin that we can see God's wrath and His power so clearly and our only response be, curse God. Friends, we need to know this in the deepest part of our soul. Our sin will make us this stupid. Your sin will make you this stupid. Sin will cause us to be so foolish that instead of repenting and giving God glory, His Word and His judgments will cause you to harden your heart and curse Him and not give Him the glory that He alone deserves. Well, the fifth bowl is in verses 11 and 12, I mean, 10 and 11. 10 and 11. This bowl echoes the ninth plague on Egypt, the plague of darkness. Specifically, God plunges the throne of the beast and his kingdom into darkness. And notice how severe this darkness is. This is a darkness you and I have never experienced. This darkness is so severe that people gnaw their tongues in anguish. But that's not all they did with their tongues. Notice in verse 11 that they blame God for their pain and their sores. 
Think about what's happening here. As God pulls the plug on their self-sufficiency, as God strips away everything that they're trusting in, everything that they're hoping in, and He's leaving them laid bare with nothing to trust in but themselves. As God does that, they see the consequences of their sin, and their only response is what? Not repentance, but blasphemy. This reminds me of a proverb, Proverb 19.3. It's going to be on the screen. Listen to this and try to see what this is saying. Proverbs 19.3 says, When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, when his sin is found out and the consequences are there, what does, what does the sinner do? He rages against the Lord. We all do this, don't we? We follow our sin. We go after our own way. We go after our selfishness. We go after our pride. We go after our lust. We go after our materialism. It ends up destroying our lives, costing us a lot, breaking relationships in our lives. And what's our response to that? We blame God. We blame God. God, this is your fault. God, did, God you did this to me. This is how wicked we are. This is how stupid our sin makes us. And this is definitive proof that God's wrath is just. The sixth bowl is in verses 12 through 16. The great river Euphrates is dried up so that a vast army can assemble against the Lord. I think this is supposed to remind us of how God dried up the Red Sea so His people could could avoid being overtaken by the Egyptians, but here the sea is dried up so that the kings of the east can come and assemble against the Lord. In this sixth bowl, notice the unholy trinity, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. They call these unclean spirits, but they also call the kings of the whole world to an epic battle against the Lord. And so here we have the evil forces of the spiritual realm. We have Satan himself and, and his demons. We have all of these, these spiritual forces of the, of, the, of the spiritual realm calling out, joining forces with the unbelieving armies of the world to do battle against the Lord. The people of the earth are so tired of God and His plagues that they assemble themselves to war against God. We're going to stop this God from doing this. This is how delusional sin makes us. This is how satanic our sin is and the delusion of our sin is. Now, I know there are various interpretations on the battle of Armageddon. I'm sure you've heard some scary stuff about it. But again, I don't think this is predicting an actual physical battle that will one day take place. I don't think it is. Now, listen, it could be. I might be wrong on this. It could be. But what I know is that that's not the primary application I think this is symbolic of the foolishness of our sin. Sin makes you so foolish that you would do this, that you would join forces and try to fight and overthrow God. That's how dumb sin is. I mean, look how clear it is that God is going to win this battle. Verse 14 calls this day the great day of God the Almighty. You, you see that? This, they assemble when? On the great day against who? 
against God the Almighty. Let me just give you some advice here. You can, you can take this advice to the bank. The one enemy that you don't want to challenge is the Almighty. Like the one person you don't want to pick a fight with is the one who has all power and all authority in all of the universe. That's dumb. But listen, if, you, if you're brave, if you're proud, and you want to pick a fight against the Almighty, i got some advice for you. There is one day, one day, that you should not challenge him to a fight. And that is on the great day. On his great day. God will win this battle. And all who oppose him will be devastated, will be overthrown. We'll come back to verse 15 in just a moment. But notice the seventh bowl in verses 17 through 21. The seventh bowl is sort of the ultimate mic drop from God. With this seventh bowl, God's wrath is completed. It is done. And in fact, notice the voice that's heard coming from the throne in verse 17. There's a voice that comes from the throne and it says, It is done. Where have we heard that before? While hanging on the cross? while bearing the very wrath of God for our sins, remember Jesus cried out, it is finished. It is done. Tetelestai. It has been paid in full. And so I think verse 17 is supposed to remind us of this epic cry of Jesus from the cross. You see, here's the point. The wrath of God for our sin is either finished on Jesus on the cross or it will be fully finished on the great day of the wrath of God. You either trust in Jesus to pay for your sins, or you drink the cup of the wine of God's fury mixed to full strength. Notice this seventh bowl has these devastating earthquake and hailstorm. It says the earthquake is so great it's never been seen on the earth before. And verse 21 says the hailstones that fell on people weighed a hundred pounds each. Now I did a quick Google search because I was unfamiliar with how many pounds hailstones weighed and the largest piece of hail ever recorded in history was just over two pounds. And the imagery here is of hailstones a hundred pounds each falling on people. And again, notice the people's response. Notice your response. They cursed God because the plague was so severe. Remember that last word of chapter 16? The word severe, or your translation may say, terrible. Now let me close by highlighting three truths about God's wrath that we learn in this passage. Three truths about God's wrath that we learn that we should live in light of that should cause us to praise and worship our great God. Number one, God's wrath is totally just and right. I want you to hear this. God's wrath is totally just and right. No matter 
how anyone else views God's wrath, no matter how your sinful heart wants to marginalize and justify it, no matter what you need to know, and I need to know this deep in my soul, that God's wrath is always just and right. This is the main point of this passage, I think. God acts justly and rightly when He pours out His wrath. This is why the people of heaven can sing, True and just are your judgments, O God. The people of God, do you see this in this passage? The people of God, the people of heaven, the heavenly creatures, celebrate the righteous wrath of God. They celebrate it. God's wrath is not shameful. It's part of His glorious character that makes Him God. And they celebrate His truth. They celebrate His justice. They celebrate His wrath because it is who He is. Parents, have you ever disciplined your kids? Like maybe grounded them or you took away their phone or something like that and their response to your judgment was, Oh, Dad! Oh, Mom, true and just are your judgments. Like, has a, has a student ever gotten detention at school and sang about the rightness of how they were treated? You see, I think this just lets us know we have this weird, whacked sense of what is just and what is true and is right. And just knowing that, knowing that our sense of justice is, is, is all messed up should help us enjoy this truth. That God is perfect in all of His judgments. He has never made an unfair or untrue judgment. And He is to be praised for that. He's to be praised. He's to be exalted for that. This is beautiful about our God. His judgments are always true and just and right. And I think if there ever were a Bible passage that explains that God's wrath is not only what people deserve, but it's actually what they want. This is it. And this passage is describing our sinful hearts. This is every human heart in rebellion against God. Every human heart curses God and refuses to repent and refuses to give Him glory. God shows up with His power and all of us just want to curse Him, want to not give Him glory, want to not repent of our sins, which is what makes the Gospel of Jesus Christ so sweet. Because when we were God's enemies, when we refused to repent, when we refused to give Him glory, that's when Christ died for us. Listen, the Gospel is not you were so good and so moral. You did so many awesome things that God noticed you and put favor on you. That's not the gospel. The gospel is when you were God's enemies, when you were opposed to Him, when you were cursing Him, when you were arrayed in battle against Him. At that moment, Jesus died for your sins so that the Holy Spirit could change your heart and give you new affections to see these glories and these beauties for all eternity. Jesus got what we deserve so that we can get what He deserves. Jesus bore the justice and wrath of God in our place so that we could get the favor and love and grace and mercy that Jesus alone deserves. And so friends, as we come to this passage, the question is not, is this just of God? When we see His wrath, the question is not, is this really just? 
No, the question is, how great must my sin be if this is what it deserves? How holy must God be if this is the way He responds to sin? You see, if we find in our hearts a bucking against God's just judgment, we need to repent of that and ask Him to see our sin the way He sees it because His wrath, His justice is totally right, totally true, totally beautiful. Here's the second truth I want you to see in this passage about God's wrath, and it's this. God's wrath is painfully severe. God's wrath is painfully terrible. That's the last word of chapter 16, isn't it? Severe. They cursed God because the plagues were so severe. And we see this all through this passage, don't we? The intensity and the severity of God's wrath. Harmful sores and fire and blood and death and gnawing of tongues and a hundred pound hailstones. All of this designed not to get us to look to some future day when this will like actually happen, but all of this design in this book to help us see our sin and the foolishness and the awfulness of it. These are metaphors that point to realities greater than themselves. The severity of God's wrath is indescribable. Listen, here's, here's, here's what I know about God's wrath. You don't want to face it. You don't want to face it. It will be overwhelmingly awful. And so how can we avoid it? How can we avoid it? If it's, if it's this severe, if it's this awful, how can we avoid it? And that's the third truth and the final one that I think is clear in this passage. And it's this, God's wrath can be avoided. God's wrath can be avoided. In the mercy of God, He has provided a way that you don't have to experience His wrath for all eternity. In fact, the whole thrust of this passage is that not everyone experiences the wrath of God, right? I mean, just think back to chapter 15, verse 2 and 3 and 4. There are those who sing the song of the Lamb in the very throne room of God. Isn't that saying to us, there's a way to avoid the wrath of God. They sing this victory song. They don't experience the wrath of God. They sing about God's deliverance. They sing about His salvation. They sing the song of the slain Lamb. Also notice several of these bold judgments make clear that God is pouring these bowls of wrath on those who worship the beast. On those who refuse to repent of their sin. And so it's very clear in this passage that the wrath of God can be avoided. And the clearest description, I think, in this passage of who avoids God's wrath is found in this parenthesis in chapter 16, verse 15. Okay, so here's the last verse we're going to look at. Look at chapter 16, verse 15. This is Jesus Himself interjecting into the vision that John is seeing and comforting and teaching John and by, and by implication us. Jesus says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And so just right on the surface, notice there's a blessing. All of this cursing, all of this blasphemy, all of this wrath, all of this judgment that this passage is filled with. And here's a verse that's telling about blessing. 
Here's a verse that's telling about someone who's blessed. And so Jesus says that the ones who do not experience God's wrath are those who stay awake and those who have His garments on. In other words, those who avoid the wrath of God's judgment are those who have been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. The ones who avoid His wrath are not those who go about naked and exposed with their own garments on. But those who avoid His wrath are clothed in His garments. And so we know from all of Scripture that trusting in Jesus, being united to Jesus by faith, that's how you avoid God's righteous wrath. All of those outside of Jesus will be judged by the wrath of God. But all of those in Jesus have the wrath of God satisfied by Jesus. And so Christian, verse 15, stay awake. Stay awake. Jesus is coming like a thief, which means when we least expect it. Be prepared for Jesus' coming. Be ready. Be awake. In fact, the, the call here is to live your life in light of this reality of His second coming on the, the great day of God the Almighty. Live today in light of that day. Live today in light of the day when Jesus indeed will come. And so all of this is written to help us persevere, to help us not give up in the midst of this world of pain and sorrow and suffering. We're to set our eyes on and we're to sing about the hope we have because Jesus will come again. Behold, I come, I come like a thief. Stay awake, stay ready. And so the question I leave you with that I really want you to ponder in your own life, in your own heart, are you awake? Are you awake? Has God awakened you by His Spirit? And are you living in this sort of awakeness of the reality of Jesus coming? The reality of what Jesus has done? Are you clothed in Jesus' righteousness so that you're not going to be exposed? I want to pray for you now because I know there are people in this room that you can't answer that question yes. You're not clothed in Jesus' righteousness. You're not awake. I want to pray for you now that God would indeed now Open your heart to the beauty and majesty of Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray for those in this room. They may be children. They may be teenagers. They may be dads or moms. They may be grandparents. But I pray that you would open their eyes. That you would quicken them, awaken them to the greatest realities in the universe. Not just that they would want to Avoid your wrath. Yes, Lord, help us to want to avoid your wrath. But, but not just that, but that they would see the beauty and majesty of King Jesus and that they would go running to Him by faith. I pray that You would do that for my friends here today. I pray for those who You have awakened, for those who are following You. I pray that they would be ready, that we would be ready. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We long for your coming. And it's in you alone that we trust and that we cling to. We thank you, Lord Jesus, and we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing in Christ alone.